Amen. Well, one of the joys of having relationships with churches from around the city is Brian just prayed for Castleview Church, as we often have. And this morning, we get the joy of hearing from one of our brothers from Castleview Church. So the reason that we're taking a, a one-week break in First Peter is this weekend, the other elders and I had a chance on Friday afternoon through last evening, we got away for a, a little elder retreat to do some praying and planning and thinking on uh, how we can best serve the church in the coming year. And so I'm excited in the coming weeks and months to share some of the fruit of that time. But because of that, we knew that it would be beneficial to have someone else come and bring God's word to us this morning. And so I am thrilled to have Gus Pritchard. He's one of the pastors up at Castleview. Um, I have been blessed by this brother, just hearing his teaching both at a few different events, but also from afar. Uh, he is a godly man. Uh, I'll give you just a snapshot of Gus. He's married to Kate, and like me, he is a girl dad, has three girls. He has, he's originally from South Africa, uh, from Johannesburg, from Cape Town originally, but pastored for nine years in Johannesburg before coming to the U.S., um, and he's been up at Castleview Church for the last four years. And so I'm excited he's going to walk us through part of the book of Jude. So hopefully you'll even hear some connections to what we've been talking about together in the book of First Peter. So with that, let me welcome Gus. And would you bring us God's word this morning, brother? Well, Dan, thank you for that warm introduction. Um, it is uh, a delight to be with you guys this morning. I see some familiar faces but it's nice to see so many new faces. We pray for Chapel Word uh, regularly uh, from the pulpit. I'm sure Nathan, Pastor Nathan will be doing that uh, this morning in our gathering um, on the northeast side. Uh, so it is uh, a joy to be here and please do receive our greetings uh, as a church uh, to you. May the Lord prosper you even through our gathering, even through our study this morning of uh, the latter chapters in Jude chapter 17, or shall we say verses 17 to 24. I wonder if you heard of the uh, incident of the soldier who ran from the battlefield and kept running and kept running. The year was 490 BC and a Greek soldier suddenly began running home to Athens. He ran 26 miles without stopping because he had urgent news from the Battle of Marathon. Apparently, as the story goes, the soldier collapsed when he arrived in Athens and suddenly died. And this long race, or shall I say this long run, uh, by this soldier is the origins of the modern-day marathon, 26.2 miles. Now, uh, whether the story is true in all its details or not, I am uh, often very impressed when I observe and hear of people running marathons. I myself am not a marathon runner, but I know enough of uh, the agony, the pain, uh, the stress, the temptation to give up, to stand back and be impressed when somebody is uh, pushing on, uh, even be happy to start a marathon race. Now, I realize that some of you may not like exercise at all, let alone marathons, and that this uh, opening illustration may uh, find uh, on your ears something a little off-putting. But if you're a Christian, you're a Christian this morning, here is a thing that you must hold on to. All Christians are enlisted, are signed up for a spiritual marathon. Christian life 
is far more like a marathon than it is like a 100-meter sprint, a dash. Uh, it is more like the man or woman who is pushing on, pressing on through pain, through loss, through tears, fighting the temptation to give up. That is far more the biblical picture of the Christian life. And that's what we see in the latter part of Jude, of a short little book. Jude, uh, in the very end, we are looking at verses 17 uh, to 25. Before we look at these verses, I want to give you just something of the background of the book and something of the structure and sort of main themes in the book before we dive in and look at these particular verses. So Jude was the brother of James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and he writes to a church that is under spiritual threat. You look at verse four of the book, you see he speaks of certain people creeping in. We don't know the specific details, but it appears that one Sunday morning there was a group of new people in the church. They appear to be Christians. They seem to be very charismatic, very impressive, very confident, likable Christians. And as you read the book of Jude, it appears that the church gave them hospitality, invited them in, ate with them, perhaps even shared the Lord's Supper with them. But Jude writes to point out that these new friends are actually a great danger, a great threat to the church. In verses 3 and 4, we have essentially the purpose statement for Jude. Let me read that. Jude 3 and 4. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I have found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Verse three is a key verse. I find it necessary to write to you, appealing to you to contend for the faith. Here's another metaphor that uh, June uses, not of persevering, not of a marathon, but of a soldier, somebody engaged in battle, somebody who has strapped on the armor of faith, put on a soldier's mindset, and is now alert, watchful. That's the posture that Jude wants these Christians to take on. And he goes on at the very end of the, the letter to, to nuance this, to, to put some more details on this, and he essentially calls them to persevere. Throughout the letter, we have very important words, or one sort of set of words that run through the letter, the words keep and kept. I'm going to read our section, verses 17 to 25, but I'm first going to start uh, from verses 1, 1 to 4, and then I'll read 17 to 25, and you look out for these words, kept and keep. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may peace May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, 
ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now verses 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Now I trust you saw some of these verses, uh, some of the, uh, the places where these words keep or kept occur. It's there in verse 1. It's again in verse 21, keep yourselves. And then in verse 24, him, God, who is able to keep. God keeps his beloved people. He is able to keep them all the way to the end. And yet he does this, he does this providing strength and a desire for them to keep themselves. The evidence of God keeping his people is seen in his people keeping themselves, verse 21, in the love of God. And this little section at the end really has an emphasis on our responsibility to persevere, to keep believing, to keep pressing on, to keep living out a life of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep yourselves in the love of God. That's sort of the key verse, I think, at the very end section. If you were to write one sort of sentence down to summarize these verses, I offer this sentence for you. True Christian faith holds onto Jesus all the way to the end. True Christian faith holds onto Jesus all the way to the end. Now, I realize there may be very mature Christians here this morning. I don't know. Many of you, I don't know any of you really well other than Dan and Ben, but I realize there could be Christians here this morning who are discouraged, who know well the Scripture's call to persevere, and yet for some reason this morning feel the weight of this call. Perhaps it's your own struggle with sin. Perhaps it's a parenting season where life just feels pretty, pretty heavy. Maybe you have an extended family relationship uh, where there is opposition to your faith, where there is such struggle that you wonder whether it's of any use to keep pressing on as a Christian. Well, I have good news for you. This passage gives us not only specific uh, directions where to look, but there is hope, great gospel hope, as we hear this call to persevere. Jude here at the end, I think, gives us five places to look, and this is going to be our outline this morning, five places to look 
as we give ourselves to persevere. We must look back. We must look within. We must look around. We must look forward and up. I'll give them to you as we go along. First, we must look back. Verse 17, he says, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the law of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Jude wants to equip these uh, early readers uh, for the threat of false teachers. And he wants to situate their sort of uh, situation in light of what not just the Lord Jesus, but what the apostles have warned them about. He says, remember, look back and think of what the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ said would be our experience in this life, the last time. These are familiar words in the New Testament, the last day sometimes uh, the apostles use. They indicate this period at the very end of the age. We live in the last days. All of us who have lived post-resurrection in the days of the Spirit, awaiting Christ's return, we live in the last days. And in these days, Jude says, the apostle warned us that there will be false teachers. So we ought not be surprised when we find the man or the woman who is particularly articulate, uh, winsome perhaps, funny in their presentation, and yet we find out that they are actually not Christians. That experience, that phenomenon should not surprise us because Jude says the apostles warned us. It's a very similar warning in 2 Peter verse 3, chapter 3, verse 3. Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. And 1 Peter, 1 Timothy 4 verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. We must look back and remember what did the apostles, what does the New Testament describe as our Christian experience? There's lots of things we can say. It will be a, a time of suffering, of struggle with sin. It will also be a time when we will encounter false teaching. What's very interesting here is that Jude points out that these people are scoffers. And most of the time in the New Testament, when, when the writers refer to scoffers, they generally refer to their speech, to scoff to deride, to make fun of the gospel message. That's normally how scoffers are described. But here, here they're described as those whose lives are governed by ungodly passions. So how do we identify false teachers? Well, we need to pay attention to what they teach. But sometimes, sometimes we must press mute on the YouTube, press mute on TV, and just ask the question, what are these people like? You visit a new church, perhaps you're very impressed with the preaching, you should ask the question, what's the pastor and the elders like? How do they treat their wives? How do they engage with the people in their neighborhood? Do their colleagues at work know them to be humble, honest, trustworthy? How do we identify false teachers? Well, in part, by their lives. We must first, as we persevere, look back. 
remember what the apostles said of our lives now. Secondly, we must look within. We must look within. Verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. You know, Jude pivots from uh, attention to false teachers, and he says you need to give yourselves to living a holy life. He uses a building image, perhaps even of the temple, and he's saying, remember the template for the Christian life. It is to be a holy life, a most holy faith. We are indwelt by not just the third person of the Trinity, not just the Spirit, but the Holy Spirit. You must understand that these words stand in contrast to uh, verses 19. There he describes the, the false teachers, how they are those who cause divisions, verse 19. They are worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. Don't follow them. Don't be seduced and entertained by their worldly lifestyle, their carnal joking. No, you, beloved, he says, build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. We ought to be those who, who pray for the things the Spirit alone can give, for, for patience, for love, for faith, for perseverance. Think what worldly false teachers may pray for. Comfort, riches, success at work. Uh, worldly things that, 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 that even those who do not have the Spirit may say, yeah, I want those too. But what do Christians want? Those who have the Spirit, those who have been born again, what do we want deep down in our hearts? We want to be like Jesus, don't we? We want to have something of his humility, something of his meekness, something of his obedience in the face of suffering. That's what true Christians want. That's what Christians want deep down in our hearts. And Jude's saying, forget these false teachers who are perhaps very entertaining, very charming, you build yourself up. You look within and ask yourself, are you making progress? Are you praying as one who is controlled by the Spirit? Imagine a young girl goes off to college. In her senior year, she's baptized at a church. She's clearly displayed fruits of the Spirit. People in her workplace, perhaps at Starbucks or McDonald's, in her church, they recognize, they can affirm, this girl has changed. She not only professes faith, but, but she lives it out. So her church baptizes her, and off she goes to college. Well, a few months later, just imagine, mom and dad realize, man, Maggie, this is her name, no one that, that you'll know, and this is an imaginary person, but Maggie is not doing as well at school as they would expect. And Maggie's not going to church. So mom and dad, after praying, get in a car, drive down to college town, sit Maggie down on Thursday evening and try gently, winsomely to understand what's going on. Well, they find out Maggie's got a new group of friends, some girls who call themselves Christians. But as Maggie talks, they realize these girls don't live like Christians. They don't go to church. The media they consume, the way they speak, these people don't sound like Christians. So mom and dad say, Maggie... Don't compare yourself to these girls. You remember what the Lord Jesus has called us all to do. 
to build ourselves up in our holy faith. Get back on the horse with your daily devotions. Make sure you go to church on Sunday. And remember there is grace for all our sins. Here's the second way we persevere. We look within. We build ourselves up in the most holy faith and give ourselves to pray as those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit. Number three, number three, we look forward. Those who wish to persevere right to the very end must look forward. Verse 21b. Keeping yourselves, key verse we said, keeping yourselves in the love of God by waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Waiting. We just sang earlier, I will wait for you. This is the posture of the Christian faith. We're a people who are forward-looking, a people who are looking towards that great day. Paul writes to Titus with very similar sentiments. He says, Titus 2 verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to live self-controlled, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, the grammar in Jude, in Jude 21, is saying that we keep ourselves by building ourselves up in verse 20 and by waiting, by waiting, by fixing our eyes on that day which is to come. A day described how? A day of mercy. The day that leads to eternal life. Now, if you know your Bible, you'll know that, that we've received these things already, right? We are already recipients of eternal life. We are already those who have received mercy. God has spoken a word of forgiveness over us if we are trusting in Jesus. We are already forgiven of all our sins, past, present, and future. We are already those who, who can say there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. We already have tasted that the Lord is good. We have already received eternal life, and yet Jude says we look forward for a time of mercy. We look forward to a day when we will receive eternal life. How, how do we reconcile these things? Well, we've received salvation now only in part. Uh, we, we are like uh, the man or the woman selling their home, and you receive some earnest money. It's not all that is owed you. It's not all that's promised you. It's just a little something. And as Christians in this life, you must realize that you have only received a small little bit of the glorious salvation that Christ has earned through his cross. We have only tasted. We walk now by faith. One day we will see by sight. Now we've received uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit. We, we, we know the power of the Holy Spirit to turn away from temptation, to, to fight our sin, to, to cling onto Christ in the midst of trials. But, but one day we'll be done with sin. One day there'll be no more temptation. We know something of the renewing of our spirit. But we still look forward to a day when we receive our resurrection bodies. We, we hear and we are thrilled by God's word when we read it, when we sing it, when we hear it preached, but, but one day we will see him in all his glory. And Jude says we keep ourselves in the love of God as we look forward to that day. 
Look at verse 24. Look at the picture described there. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. That's the goal of our salvation. The high point of the redemption in Jesus Christ is not the cross, it's not the resurrection. It is the final day when Christ will have all his people perfected, filled with joy, in his life-giving presence. And Judah's saying, look forward to that day. Keep your mind's eye on that day. We are like those children knowing that grandparents are coming to visit. And they keep looking out the front door. They keep looking out the window. Uh, We're like the couple who is going to get married in a couple of months, and they know how many days, perhaps even hours, till the wedding day. Christian faith is a forward-looking faith. Take note of the songs you sing, particularly those that speak of heaven. Christ is mine forevermore on Jordan's stormy banks. Perhaps you need to commit to memory these verses, verse 24 and 5, to remind you that this life is one in which you pass through as a pilgrim to remind you, Christian, that you will spend 99.99999% of your life in a better world. And the world will be marked by the life-giving presence of a happy God. Life is brief, is it not? Life is very unpredictable. I think that's one lesson we should take from this earthquake that hit southern Turkey and Syria. I wonder, do you have something that will sustain your spirit in the cold, dark parts of rubble in an earthquake? Do you have a hope for a life that cannot be lost by death? You know, I spoke to a gospel worker who works in that area this week. And they had baptized a couple who, when I spoke to this person on Monday, they were still in the rubble. Christians, just a year old, a day of hope. And if you're a visitor here this morning, I, I, I don't know you. Perhaps this is your first time in a church. I have a simple question for you. If you are in their position, facing very likely death in the rubble, do you have something to hold on to? Some of these people were in the rubble with their young children. Do you have a hope to give young children in the midst of certain death. Christians have such a hope. And there's a hope that can be yours. The good news of the gospel is that God in his kindness, the one who will judge the world in all his glory and goodness, he has come into this world and he has lived the perfect life, a life that you should live but don't and ever will. And this good judge has borne the punishment of sin for all who would put their faith in him for all who would give up looking for life apart from him, for all who would repent of their sins and trust in Jesus and his cross. He doesn't ask you to clean up your life. He doesn't ask you to promise that you will live a sinless life from here out. All he asks you to do is to trust him. Trust that he died in your place 
the sinless one dying for sinners like you, trusting that he bore in his body the judgment of a holy God that you deserve. And if you put your faith in him, you will have this happy news that God is not against you, but he is for you, that he will bring you all the way to the end, that he has secured through his death a life that we put into the shadows all the things that we may find to be delightful in this world. Christians are those who look forward as we persevere. Notice also that we are those who look around. We must look around. I wonder if you noticed uh, the corporal language, this is point four, the corporal language. He speaks of beloved uh, in the plural there in verse 17. He speaks in uh, the plural in verse 20. You must build yourselves up. The Christian life is a life that we persevere, that we live and walk in together. It is wise and good to have a disciplined prayer life. It is also wise and good Christian habits to have a disciplined church life. To be here when the doors are open. To be praying with and for your brothers and sisters in Christ. To be those who are available to help and encourage others. The passage will call us to look around. Look there, particularly at verses 21, uh, 22 and following. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. The call here in Jude is not to just run from the false teachers, but to look around and help others run. Right? The call to the Christian life is, is not just escape the wrath to come, but, but escape and look to help others escape the wrath to come. We must look around as we seek to persevere. And I want to just spend a few little moments thinking about these three groups of people that Jude highlights here in verses 22 and 23. He says, first, have mercy on those who doubt. Perhaps you're walking along somebody at the moment who, who is struggling as a Christian, who's struggling to understand that, that Christ loves them despite their background, despite their sin, despite the sin that has been committed to them. How should you handle them? Don't get frustrated, don't get impatient, have mercy on them. You can perhaps uh, imagine a teenager who comes back from school and, and, uh, and they are confused. They, 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 their Christian teacher tells them that, that uh, Jesus is okay with those who are homosexual. That gay marriage is okay and, 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 and your teenager is confused. They, they, they're not sure. Perhaps God is okay with homosexual. How do we deal with that? Well, we, we have mercy on those who doubt. We treat them gently. We treat them tenderly. We sit down. We take a walk. We try to explain again patiently the Christian truths, the truths of the Christian scriptures. As we look around and seek to help others persevere, we want to make sure that those who doubt, we treat them mercifully. That's not how we treat everybody. Some need to be snatched out of the fire, verse 23. Here's a group who's not doubting. Here's a group who's beyond asking questions. These people are now convinced that the false teachers are true. 
And Jude said, snatch them out. Deal very directly with them. Speak very plainly to them. A couple of months ago, I was speaking to a pastor who was uh, sharing a rather difficult situation uh, regarding their mission field. They had sent out a missionary years ago. They recently sent out a younger missionary to join this original missionary on the field. And the younger man who was sent out reports to the elders that the veteran missionary no longer believes in the Trinity. Well, well, well now we don't have somebody who is, who is doubting, uh, somebody who is teaching unorthodox, false truths, inerrant or rather uh, uh, um, error-prone uh, messages about the gospel. We, we must snatch them out of the fire. We must speak very directly to them. Jude uses this image uh, of, of urgency. Don't wait. Uh, don't say we'll deal with this next month. No, when we find people living in unrepentant sin, embracing and perhaps even teaching unbiblical messages, truths that are contrary to the plain teaching of the Bible, especially the gospel teaching, we must act quickly and not think too much about how they will feel about our direct approach. I don't know if you've ever had a fire in your home. This week I was interviewing some members, some prospective members for our church, and they were describing a fire that they endured while they lived in Ohio many years ago. A fire is a scary thing. Perhaps the most famous fire story I know is from uh, the man Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a Welsh preacher, preached in London in the, ninth, in the 20th century um, at Westminster Chapel. As a young man, he almost was consumed by a fire. In the countryside of, of Wales, his father was a, a wool uh, merchant, and uh, uh, one uh, afternoon, his father entertained various men who were uh, paying him for some um, goods that he sold, and they were smoking in the bottom area of the home. Now, this is 1910. Everybody smoked, right? So, so, so uh, bear a thought for them. Uh, even doctors back then smoked. We know much better now. But anyway, so there are these Christians smoking in the bottom of a home. In the middle of the night, Martin and his brother, he's probably eight at the time, awake, wake up to the smell of smoke, but they, they, they don't hear anything, they, they can't feel anything. It's the middle of winter, it's January, so they keep sleeping. Thankfully, a maid uh, uh, notices the blaze uh, in the home, and she wakes up their dad, wakes up his father, and Martin is thrown from uh, the window of their home into the hands of three neighbors who catch him. And the older brother and the father come down the ladder and just in time as the home goes down in blaze. When somebody needs to be snatched from the fire, we, we don't think too much about bruises that we might uh, uh, um, uh, cause uh, to occur on their arms. We don't worry even about broken ribs. We're throwing children from the second floor of a building, right? Life is on the line. Judah saying, Sometimes the situation is so urgent, so serious, that we need to intervene in a way that may even offend people. We must look around. There's one more image here that he, he, he highlights uh, from, for the third group. Uh, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. If you go and read Leviticus chapter 13, 47 and following, you'll understand more of what he means here. It's a, 
an image taken from the purity laws in Leviticus which highlights the trouble with leprosy, that it is highly contagious. And when you're dealing with a leprous person or a home or a piece of clothing that has been contaminated with leprosy, you have to deal with it very, very carefully lest you be infected. And Jude, I think, is using this image here to point out that sin is contagious. You can imagine uh, the pastor who has heard of a terrible, scandalous sin of a prominent member, and he tries to cover it up. It's gross sin. But the pastor or the elders are also concerned for the ministry, concerned about how it will look that they themselves sin by covering up this sin. Or perhaps you're trying to help uh, your argumentative teenager and you end up arguing with them. Sin has this contagious effect. But if we don't gently and carefully and very prayerfully handle those who are stuck in sin, we ourselves are drawn into it. As we seek to persevere and look around, we need to be mindful that the sin that others struggle with can so quickly take on the form of temptation for us. Nonetheless, we are those who must keep ourselves in the love of God, and we do this in part by looking around. Fifthly and finally, we must look up. We must look up. Look there, verses 24 to 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... And present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Here, Jude wants these people to remember how big God is. And he is able. Did you see that? Verse. 24, he is able to do two things. He's able to keep them from stumbling and he is able to present them blameless before our God. And when he says keep them from stumbling, he does not mean keep them from committing sin, keeping them from doubting. He doesn't mean that God is, is able to, to keep us from wandering for the, from the faith for a, for a period. Now, he is speaking about the sad occurrence when Christians turn their back on the Lord. When those who have walked with the Lord, profess faith in Jesus, turn their back on the Lord and follow false teaching or remain in unrepentant sin. Judah is saying, we have a God who is able to keep us from falling like that. So if we fear uh, falling away from Christ, one of the things we must do is to look to him, to keep our eyes on him who is able to keep us to the very end. I've heard Christians reflect on the great faith of those who have endured terrible persecution like the Oxford martyrs and say, oh, I could never do that. Do you know the story of the Oxford martyrs, Hugh Latimer? Nicholas Ridley, they burnt alive uh, in Oxford. And as the flames are licking at their flesh, they are encouraging each other to 
persevere. I've heard Christians uh, uh, hear that story, read that story, and say, oh my goodness, I, I could never do that. Well, Jude wants us to remember that God is able to keep us. If ever you were to face such awful circumstances, such an awful test of your faith, we must remember that we do not walk in this world alone. Jesus said, I will be with you till the very end of the age. He has given us his spirit for this very reason, that he might keep us from stumbling and present us blameless before his presence. Perhaps you're very mindful of your own spiritual weakness mindful of the sin that so easily entangles perhaps anger, impatience, greed, sexual lust, and you wonder, how will I ever make progress? On your own, you won't. With God's help, with the help of his people, through his word, by his spirit, he is able. So as we wish to make it all the way to the end, as we wish to persevere in our faith. We must look in many places, but we must especially look up to our God who is able, who is committed on our own. Who knows how far we will get in this marathon, but with the Lord Jesus Christ, with his finished work on a cross, with his life-giving spirit, we can be confident the God who makes such lavish promises to sinners here at the end of Jude is a God who is able to keep every one of them and is able to keep every one of his dear sheep. So Christian, there's lots that you have to keep in mind even as we come to the end of a study on Jude. One thing you should keep in mind is that you must look up. As you aim to be faithful, as you aim to persevere, Keep your eyes on the God who is able to keep you. The God who one day will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. The God who will say to you, Dad, welcome home. You've been on my mind a very long time. Will you keep your eyes on him? Let's pray together. Our Father, we do give you praise and thanks for all that you have done and promised to do for sinners like us. We thank you for Jesus. We pray that his name would be glorified in our lives. We pray that you'd help us cling to him. We pray that you'd help us cling to him together as we keep our eyes on our God. We pray this now in his name. Amen.